A dream job. Everyone talks about it. But what is it? I like to think of a dream job as one in which you're not only treated well, paid a lot, doing something you like, but one where you have the opportunity to work on something that really, really matters. Something that could make a real difference in the world. That's why I think that Tana Sullivan has what could very well be the coolest job in Asia. No, strike that. The coolest job in the world. Look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie, it is probably the coolest. <laughs> Um, right, that's right. That's right. It makes me I jealous. Know, that's for sure. I'm gonna own it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna own it. So, I mean, in the in the beginning, I had joined Gojek as you know, as as the first head of sustainability. Yep, you heard that right, folks. Back in October 2020, Gojek hired Tana as its head of sustainability. Then, after the Indonesia headquartered super app merged with local e-commerce behemoth Tokopedia. Tana became the head of sustainability for the newly merged entity, GoToGroup. And the best part of it is that Tana's role didn't exist before she joined the company. It was literally made for her. From Job Street and Tech in Asia, this is How to Get a Job at a Unicorn, a podcast where I talk to employees at Asia's top tech companies and find out exactly how they landed their gigs. I'm Peter Bithis. CEO of Seek Asia, parent company of Job Street and Jobs DB around the region. And in this episode, I'm going to tell you the story of how Tana managed to get a job, and such a high-level one at that, carved out for her at Indonesia's top unicorn and Southeast Asia's third most valuable startup. But first, I know what you're thinking. What does a head of sustainability even do? What does head of sustainability entail? I'm assuming it's not business sustainability, but what is it? Yeah. So, I mean, look, well, you could argue it is business sustainability. That's true. That's true. I'm sure you would argue that. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's covering, I mean, for those who are familiar with it, it's covering, you know, environmental, social governance, ESG performance for all three companies um, and obviously for, for go-to group. And it ranges from everything, everything from the kind of black and white environmental impact that our company has and our ecosystem um, to the, the social impact that we have. And I mean that in less so of a traditional CSR perspective and more of a, the millions of driver partners, merchant partners, sellers that we work with. Um, do we have a systematic and strategic way of measuring and improving um, the income generation opportunities for them, their you know, livelihoods for the long term, um, their resilient, their economic resilience in particular, especially, which was you know, heightened during um, the pandemic. And so, um, so that's kind of covering the social part, which also includes diversity and inclusion internally. Um, which is something very close obviously, to, to my heart, <laughs> to then the governance aspects, which is, you know, is the kind of infrastructure of, of the company itself and how we integrate ESG into the company's um, DNA and governance mechanisms. So making sure, for example, the entire leadership are not just aware, but are, you know, co-owning these, these mandates with me, um, because ultimately it's the business units um, who are responsible for the implementation of a lot of the the kind of roadmaps that we've built out for, for 2030. Like I said, dream job, but Tana didn't come from the startup world. In fact, her background was in public policy. 
Tana's Canadian, but she grew up in various places around Asia, spending most of that time in Indonesia. She's half Indonesia on her mother's side. In university, she studied political science, eventually working her way up to a master's degree in international politics and political economy. Try saying that 10 times fast. But exactly how did she go from that to working for a $30 billion tech company in Indonesia? I mean, her resume at this point looks more like that of a future policymaker or a diplomat than that of some startup executive. Well, the humble person that Tana is, she says that sometimes life just happens. Peter, I think you're, you're, you're making an assumption I was particularly strategic about my career. <laughs> no, I think that's the point. That's the point. I mean, if you weren't, that's okay, because I think a lot of people out there they they like, oh my God, what do I want to do in five years? And do yeah, I have a career yeah. plan and this and that? It's okay, right? That's, exactly. So how did you exactly. start out? I mean, look, it's, it was so stressful for me in the beginning, you know, because I, I I knew what I was passionate about. I knew I wanted to help people. I wanted to work with people. So my background was in political science. I wanted to actually go into the foreign service, um, which is what I did. And um, so I'm half, as I mentioned before, my- so why did you want to go to the foreign service? What was it about? I, want, I, I wanted to be a diplomat. I mean, for me, I'm, I've always been kind of a strong communicator. And as I mentioned, I love, you know, interacting with people. And on top of that, I saw kind of the impact of, public policy. I saw how important it was in, in some of the, the challenges and the issues that, you know, I had grown up seeing growing up in Singapore. So that's the other thing. So I grew up in, in quite a few different countries, Singapore, Oman, Malaysia, um, Indonesia, Australia. <laughs> and so seeing all these, um, the kind of unique contextual challenges that, that, that were, um, that were in, in these countries and how different they were and how they impacted all the different, you know, all, um, the people's lives, I saw the, I thought what I believe was the most powerful tool was public policy. And so that's how you can make real change. So Tana set out on her road to becoming a diplomat with the first step in that journey being a career in foreign services. Now the question was, which country would she work for? That's, that's a good question. I actually, I applied and um, to the foreign, so I wanted to work for the foreign service in Australia because that's kind of where I had also, that's where I was based at the time. And I kind of had the most reference points. Um, even though I didn't grow up there, I did have the most reference points too. Um, but, you know, I thought, what the heck, I'll also try for the Canadian foreign service because I can. Um, and sadly, very devastating. I didn't get into the Australian one, um, but I did get into the Canadian one. And it's a funny story because um, when I had to do my my security clearance for it, um, I actually met with the head of security clearance at the time for um, what was known as DFATE, the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade in Ottawa. And he looked at me, he was like, you know, I've never, when my when my team brought me your, your file, I've we don't even understand why you're Canadian because I'm a Canadian who was not born in Canada and never lived in Canada, who was also born to a Canadian who, my father, who is not born in Canada and has never lived in Canada. <laughs> like, he's like, we're so confused. Um, and he's like, why do you want to work? Why do you want to work with the Canadian government? Despite how unusual it was, her security clearance checked out and Tana spent the first couple of years of her career in the Canadian Foreign Services based in Japan, of all things. Eventually, finding herself being moved back to Canada in Ottawa to work as a public policy analyst and later a policy officer for things like nuclear security. And while Tana enjoyed the challenges of working in public policy, 
an opportunity to move closer to home soon came a knocking. At the time, there was a, a, a lot of job openings coming up in Australia um, as they were preparing for the G20. So, um, so they hosted the G20 summit in 2014. And they were looking, funny enough, for someone to be a liaison officer with Indonesia. And I was like, that's me. <laughs> so Tana moved back over to this side of the world, leading trade and investment facilitation for businesses in Queensland to and from Southeast Asia and China. But after three years in that gig, Tana found she wasn't making the impact that she'd yearned for when she started out. I got pretty jaded, right? I mean, you write policy brief after policy brief after, you know, and you see all these, you sit in your office and you, you, you use thousands of these things, you know, and you work with ministers. Some, some are great. Some are not so great. Um, it's completely, but you're completely beholden to the government that is elected into power. Right. And so it really, you know, you could every four years, you could, you know, you would, your, your, your department or your, your, your ministry's kind of um, direction would change depending on the individual that was, that was there or the administration that was um, elected. And it, I mean, I'm not to say that there's, that it's, everybody knows government's not perfect. Um, But at the time I thought, you know, so bureaucratic, it's, it's really getting dry. It's getting the same old, same old thing. And you just don't see change. You see these policy briefs come through your, your desk and then disappear into the night. You know, This isn't the first time I've heard of that kind of sentiment across my career. So often I've heard of people who are in the private sector, go to work for an NGO or in the government, but when they get there, they realize that it's really, really slow. In fact, it's sometimes downright Byzantine, beholden to agendas, and then it dawns on people that actually the private sector pointed in the right direction by the right leadership can make a difference in a compelling way much, much faster. And that was something that Tana was beginning to realize as well. But she couldn't just jump into it. After all, she'd spent seven whole years working in the public sector. Luckily for her, through the G20 summit in 2014, she'd gotten to work with the chairman of the B20 or the Business 20, one of the five streams that advise the G20 leaders on policies as they relate to, in the B20's case, the private sector. And that connection helped Tana get her foot in the door at the World Economic Forum. Um, so I got to know quite well the chairs and the working groups and so forth. And so he said, hey, you know, I'm, I go to this, this little meeting called Davos every year. Um, and hosted by an organization called, it's a nonprofit called the World Economic Forum. And, you know, they bring together all these business leaders and government leaders around the world. And they're looking for someone to build out, um, to basically join their Asia Pacific team. Um, unbeknownst to me, the Asia Pacific team was a few people at the time, covering everything from everything from Mongolia down to Australia and New Zealand, um, excluding China and Japan, but still a pretty big a pretty big scope. So Tana joined the World Economic Forum, or as some would say, the WEF, leading its Asia Pacific business engagement in Indonesia, Malaysia, and the Philippines on topics ranging from energy transition and combating deforestation to circular economy and supporting the growth of SMEs, just to name a few. It was then that Tana met her now employer. So while I was at the forum, I was responsible for um, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, um, and engaging companies and, and business leaders from those markets. 
And of course, you know, for me, Indonesia, very close to home. Um, I was basically there once every two months or so and from Geneva and kind of building these relationships <laughs> with, with, with people. Um, and I saw, you know, we have, the forum has quite strict um, criteria for joining. And so you have to either, you have to be kind of a fortune 500 caliber company. And when I looked at the kind of business landscape in Indonesia, I saw that, you know, you have your um, state-owned enterprises, you have your family-owned businesses, the big conglomerates. Um, but you also had this burgeoning kind of growing group of tech companies, which was really exciting and not something the forum had historically engaged with, right? And so I came back from um I came back from one of these trips and and I kind of made the case internally. Um, thank God I had a lot of support, but um to say that, you know, these are the future drive like the, the future drivers of Indonesia's, you know, economic growth. And it would be, you know, silly of us to, to ignore, not ignore, but, you know, to, to not engage them now um, and, and ensure that, you know, we bring them into, because if we're talking about topics like energy transition in Indonesia, for example, I mean, these, some of these companies even have the solutions to help or, or the scale to help, you know, implement um, or to respond to these challenges, you know, very credibly. So, that was kind of the case I made and, and it started building out from there. And, it, and, um, and of course that's how Gojek came into play. Right. So I, that's how I was introduced and met with the leadership from Gojek and, um, and got to fall in love with them <laughs> over, over the years. Um, and likewise with a lot of the other tech companies in the region as well. Um, and we built out kind of a regional tech community. And so I got to know um, them quite well. And, and, it and got so to how the point did the conversation where, come like, at, like, okay, so at some point, somebody either you went to them or they went to you like were they creating a role head of sustainability and they came to you and a lot of others or did it happen organically through your conversation and it just ended up being you or how did it how did, what happened i would say you're giving away all my secrets peter no that's <laughs> part of this podcast what people want to know kidding, kidding. no i um look i just yeah i mean look it was it was an organic conversation um with um, myself and at the time, one of the co-CEOs of Gojek, um, Andre, and we, you know, he already had this idea. They already had this idea about building out. Okay. So they already, they already had, they were they were thinking, already yeah, had they were, a mission or a purpose of we're going to make a difference in sustainability. We're going to, we're going to make sure we're a sustainable, uh, enterprise. I would actually, no, I would say that, you know, the Gojek was born, was conceived already with, social impact kind of at its core. And I know a lot of companies say this and, you know, with a mission and purpose and so forth, but if you actually look at it, right, like they, like, like a lot of tech companies in this region, they were trying to solve a real problem. Um, and that was, you know, the congestion in cities like Jakarta, but giving people back time um, that they were losing through, through, you know, the, the horrendous traffic conditions, um, but also providing, you know, a more systematic way for, of, of income generation for the, now, I mean, now millions of drivers we have, and um, lo and behold, you know, over ten years later, it's 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 an incredible model. Um, it works very well in the Indonesian context and market. And so, I think it, at that point in time, um, Gojek had been thinking of how do we more systematically and strategically um, approach this. Right? We talk about social impact being at at kind of in our mission, but what does it look like to do this in a credible and according to global standards way? 
So I was just trying to bring to Gojek kind of brainstorm what were some of the best practices that I had seen across the region, um, globally, across the industry. Um, and then it kind of happened organically from there. <laughs> it was like, and hey, was it, did you, you ever interview formally or was it just an organic conversation yeah. that evolved? You did an a surface of granite conversation, um, kind of looking at what best practice looked like and what it looked like especially within um, a company's context and a function and so forth. And I, I, I did all that thinking, but I would love to do this. I would so love to do this, but you know, I'm, I'm just trying to help it out. And I'm, I'm, and then, you know, as I said, I fell in love with the team and the leadership um, at Gojek. And ultimately, you know, as I was going through this process, I thought, you know, I, I just really want them to find the right person because whoever fills it, ha- you know, whoever fills this role, there's so much impact and there's so much responsibility. And, um, and if it's not me, that's okay. Because as long as it's the right person to do the fact that they were even, you know, putting somebody in this role, that's incredible. Luckily for Tana, the Gojek leadership saw probably what you've heard that not only did she have a good grasp of their business and what it's all about, but she was also completely aligned with their purpose and their mission. Now, you might be thinking out there, it doesn't matter as much if you're a full-stack developer, a digital marketeer, or a finance expert, but trust me when I say that companies, at least the more innovative ones, the ones you probably want to work for, look for people who first know and then second are aligned with and passionate about what they're trying to do as companies. And it was because Tana's care for Gojek's mission shone through that they offered her a position as their very first head of sustainability. Oh, hot tip for anyone out there thinking about pursuing a career like Tana's. She's hiring. The two people I have on my team right now are internal transfers. Amazing, amazing individuals. Um, so now it's time to kind of grow the team and, and, and start doing some external recruitment. So this is, this is very exciting for us. I'm sure a lot of people would love to get onto your team listening after this podcast, thinking about your interview and thinking about when you interview, what do you think some of the things that got you over the line or things that, you know, you think about your team that you're putting together and put together, got them over the line that you could share. Look, I mean, someone with a little bit of sustainability experience and what I mean, I mean, it doesn't mean that they have to have been, you know, have be GRI standard certified or, you know, have like, <laughs> or have previous experience, you know, auditing ESG reports or things like that. Um, it helps definitely, but ultimately I'm looking for, for someone with, uh, some heart and some soul and some stomach for this um, because it's 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 very much you know rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty. I mean, we're really looking for someone who's not afraid of of you know, who can work at all levels, right? You set the high level strategy. Um, we we work with our board, with our leaders, senior leadership on a regular basis, and that requires some high level thinking. Um, but then you also have to be willing to kind of get down into the weeds as well and, and make sure you really understand how this business, the different business lines and how we operate, um, so that we can be the best position to, um, to support those business lines and implementing kind of our, our big sustainability goals. It's not often you meet someone whose job makes such a difference to not only the company they work for and the country they're in, but for the rest of the world. And that's what makes Tana's job such a cool one in my book. So I hope you've had as good of a time listening to her story as I did when I first heard it. Anyway, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. 
How to Get a Job at a Unicorn is a podcast by Tech in Asia, produced in partnership with us over here at Job Street. If you're looking for a job, find us at jobstreet.com or jobsdb.com, depending on your geography. And hopefully we'll get you started at your own dream job real soon. Special thanks, of course, to Tana Sullivan for sharing her unbelievably amazing career journey. If you want to connect with her, we'll include some links to her LinkedIn profile in the show notes down below. And special thanks to Nat Fetelvero, our trusted podcast producer here today. This is the last episode of How to Get a Job at a Unicorn. Thank you so much for listening. But if you like what you hear, give us a follow and rate us five stars on whatever app you're listening on. If people love it enough, we might just make more of these. Who knows? I, you know, I hope we do. Make sure to check out the other episodes too. We've got people from Grab and Lala Move talking about how they landed their gigs and sharing some tips for anyone who wants to join a unicorn. But that's it for the episode. My name's Peter Bithis. Thanks for joining, and I hope you join us again soon. <laughs>